Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Once I had a one-on-one session with somebody and we did some of the ancestral work. And then the next morning she wrote to me and she said, listen, it's unbelievable, but the, that part of my family was 30 years and strange. We had no contact to that part of the family. And that night, that person wrote her an email just after doing that process. And I have experienced yeah, I, this more often. Uh, it's wild. Thing. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's amazing. And so many family systems actually can begin to heal when those stagnations are being consciously addressed step by step and it creates new movements and reorganizes the system. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. Today I am joined by Thomas Hubel. Welcome. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be with you. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have you on. The first time I discovered you was on Kathy Heller's podcast. And I really loved that there was this intersection of mysticism meets science. And although I think those things are always coexisting and maybe science is the attempt at the linear mind to find or describe mysticism, I really wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, what you mean by mysticism and how that plays, you know, played a part in your journey in, in becoming the teacher that you are today and, and where science was in there too. Yeah, I think in my own biography, there are a few steps that explain that maybe. One is that as a child, I had already like a very strong connection to God, but I didn't have a good relationship with the church, at least mm. not where I was, not in general, but where I grew up is was a village close to Vienna. And it's I don't know, there was something that didn't connect for me. It felt cold, distant, uh, but the, the deeper spiritual aspect behind was always close to me. And then uh, when I was 16, I started to work as a volunteer for the Red Cross and I became a paramedic and then a teacher for paramedics. And so, and then while I did this as a volunteer, I studied medicine. So there's the science part. I was always, I loved medicine. When I was 26, I left my medical studies and I, be- I went on a four-year meditation retreat. 
<laughs> and so there came the mysticism back. Uh, so then I felt a very strong calling to kind of detox my mind and, and find something deeper in the depth of consciousness that is a deeper guidance that I felt very strong called to. And uh, so, and from that, I started teaching afterwards. And, and so these two voices were always very interrelated. I feel very at home in both. And uh, yeah. so, and I, I think actually at the base, as you said, there's, there is only one voice that we express through different channels. And yeah, so that's a bit the journey. Yeah, I find it fascinating that in the sort of more scientific realm, or even the space of psychology, there is a desire to try to measure things or like put a label on something. And do you think that's due to a discomfort with mysticism or the unknown that we've tried to create this like, I need certainty, I need to know? Yeah, I think also in the in the mystic, what I call the mystical science, like the inner science in thousands of years of mystical traditions, there is also like a process many people follow. It's not that linear and that mental, but the deep practice is usually needed for many of what we call mystics, like the people that really had deep awakening moments or awakening processes through their practice in different traditions around the world. And so there is also like a, a stream to that awakening process. And I, I think so that the mind needs to keep us safe. And I think if we can measure and keep things organized, so then it's easier for us to feel safe with it, which on the one hand creates also some kind of quality and precision. On the other hand, it also sometimes cuts us off from a deeper organic uh, emergence or evolution of, of the flow of life. And so I think if we can combine those in a good way, these voices, and have them be in a dialogue, then I think we get the best of both sides that anyway, deeper down, like from the mystical point of view, we are not talking about that these are two things. But from the world of objects in reality, maybe we can see it as too. Your journey from being a paramedic <laughs> to then being like, I'm going to go on a four-year deep dive into meditation. So for, I'm curious because for someone listening who might not know but is having a call towards building a meditation practice, diving into the journey towards mysticism, how did you go from like what you were experiencing as as a paramedic to knowing that or or longing for whatever to call you to meditation. I started to meditate when I was 19. When I started my medical studies, I also started meditating. And so meditation, I did that every day. And it was like I had an ongoing practice when I was 26. I did this already for seven years. So there was a base. But over time, and I loved medicine, but there was like a growing sense that something else, like as if deep inside myself, something was pulling me stronger and stronger. And I felt like a desire and uh, like to sit, to deepen and to, and also in these four years, I often said when people ask me, what are you doing? <laughs> and then I said, I, I don't know, it's a different kind of studying. It's, mm. it's a studying in a deep, Im immersive, contemplative way 
but I learned tons about life in, in these four years uh, that I think for my work later on uh, were crucial. I think I, I really think these four years were crucial, even though they weren't always easy. Uh, you know, you go, I went through my own internal process. Um, but for the work I do and also the collective work I do, I think the capacities that opened up in me for holding spaces, staying present with and like what meditation, deeper meditation gives us or can give us, uh, I think is crucial for what I, what developed later on in my life. Well, your newest book, Attuned, which is about practicing interdependence to heal our trauma and our world. What inspired you to write that book? Yeah, so I think 20 plus years ago, when I, my workshops, my groups, they grew pretty fast. And then I often encountered how collective trauma started to emerge in my groups, like really topics like the Holocaust, Second World War, and then later on all the, the work that we did on racism or colonialism or gender violence, like, like collective pain or wounds or scars that came up. And so every time we dealt with that and what I learned about collective trauma or systemic trauma, was definitely informed by the capacity of sensing, being attuned to group spaces and to individuals. But I felt that that when I saw more and more how trauma emerged in the groups, that our capacity to like, I feel you and I feel how you feel me is a core element of dealing with all kinds of content, personal, ancestral, collective. And so every time we strengthened a group through attunement work, it created the safety that was necessary to detox deeper content. Mm. And so attunement was from the beginning something we intuitively worked with, but the longer and the more experience I got, the precise attunement is actually super powerful. That's why I often say precision is love. Like really mm -hmm. meeting somebody in a specific part of their experience that they want to express or a group in a specific part of the group experience is very loving because it's very specific and it holds like a, a bigger space at the same time. And so the work that I've done over the last 20 years, I thought, wow, we need, I need to write about attunement and how important it is for every one of us, but especially also for everybody who works professionally with clients, like therapists, coaches, also teachers, leaders, many people. What does it mean to be in that dance of attunement? Like what, I guess maybe even more specifically, like how do I know I'm attuned? Like, it's like music. How do you know that you listen to music? It creates like a certain rhythm in you. It creates a certain fluidity in you. It, it, it feels that it, the music is not just outside of your ears. You know, sometimes we don't listen to music and the music is here. The music is all over inside of us. It, it feels like it, it animates us inside. And that's, I think, the, experience when we are really related to somebody the person is not just anymore out there 
like we feel that we are being animated by the the, trans, the the information that's flowing between us, and it creates a resonant field. And it's different than to be a bit distant and you are here and I'm here. That's not when when we listen to music, it doesn't stop here. Even if the the speakers are kind of somewhere in the room, and I would say that's a little bit the experience of uh, attunement that you feel. You feel the intra-existence, how the, the other person exists in your inner world or in forms you. So when I talk to you, mm. you inform me. And the more the form that I experience of you in myself, that creates intimacy between us. And if you do the same, we begin actually to share the same space, then two separate spaces. And I think that's the, the feeling we have, like when you listen to good music and the music speaks to you. That's a little bit of a comparison, maybe. That's really interesting. I love what you said about like inform. Like not only am I being informed through the dialogue we're having, but I mean, you're actually entering in my form. If, if I, I suppose, is there a willingness that's required? Like how, what are the blocks that we can have to, because that would feel like now that you've stated it that way, it would feel like I'd really be closed off to a deeper conversation with you if I didn't allow you in form. You know, I think that's a really interesting way of describing it. Right. Because when information, sometimes we feel that information goes in only on the intellectual level, but sometimes yeah. we feel touched by someone. Sometimes, sometimes we feel we are really connected and we really deeply feel each other. And of course, that's, that's, I think, how relating in its essence is. The, the reason why we talk about it a lot is because we are living in a partly hurt world, a traumatized world, and trauma hurts, in a way, the capacity to be in that resonant relational field. Why? Because it also makes sense, because most of the trauma that is in humanity has been inflicted by other humans, either by yeah. inappropriate parental relationships, by violence, wars, whatsoever. And, and so when the data doesn't flow, we still intra-exist in each other, but there are filters in between that don't mm. allow us to really feel that. And I think that's where a lot of intimacy is kind of blocked. And that's why we create all kinds of compensations and all kinds of effortful ways to relate to each other because the natural flow is not happening anymore. And I often say that either my body knows your body and also when we work on trauma like we can feel very precisely how the body feels from inside with somebody that carries trauma but if i if i need to analyze intellectually your body language which many people study that's kind of a, a bridge or a bypass to the natural flow that my body knows mm -hmm. your body because they resonate with each other. I don't need the translation through my mind. And the same is also with emotions. If we ask a therapeutic question that the person can reflect, so how do you feel right now? So that's for the purpose of the person feeling themselves. But it's 
it's not because I don't know what the person feels, because my emotional system can pick up if the person is scared or sad or so. I, I feel that when I'm sitting with somebody. Or when the person is numb, then I feel the numbness. But often we ask other people how they feel because we don't feel that. And I think that's already a mm -hmm. sign of a collectively traumatized world that we normalize that state and that we often live in a in a social context where this I feel you feeling me is not so simple as it sounds often. It sounds very simple, but it's not that simple as we all know. So you're saying there is that we are often if I understand you correctly, that we are often disconnected from our own senses. And then when you or I in, are in dialogue, and if one of us is cut off from our own sense of self, quote unquote, then I actually won't be able to be in that dance with you. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And that many people pathologize that cut offness in themselves versus seeing, wow, mm. When my parents hit me or when my parents neglected me or whatever was my childhood attachment story, then pulling back and protecting myself was super intelligent. So we all did the most intelligent thing that was mm -hmm. possible in the given ecosystem. So even if I feel cut off, there is an intelligence in retracting from painful relational situations. And so if we can depathologize that and relate to the quality of retracting versus I'm, I'm just not able to relate, then we can work with that intelligence and bring it back and then mm. re-relate today in the present context where maybe that violence or that doesn't happen anymore. That's beautiful. I'm, how would someone know that they're blocked from that? Like how would you, I mean, other than potentially the knowledge of your childhood, how would I detect within myself that I have filters and, and, and the inability to do that? Yeah, first of all, I think um, a lot of self-development starts, I think, with humility. Even just listening to us now, that, that I begin to take into account, or that I know that the mark that I see is or feel is the version of you that I can represent in myself. It doesn't mean that that's you. I only know what I feel, see, experience. And through constant relating, I'm updating Mark and Thomas. Mark and Thomas. So I, when mm. I feel you, you, I up, you get updated in me, in my central nervous system. And so like that, I find out if that's a congruent experience or if there are some incongruencies that create over time relational issues between us. Once I see relational issues and I don't try to not have them, but, or in intimate relationships, the issues that we have with our intimate partners are showing that incongruency between the one that we see and feel and the one that's really mm -hmm. there, there are some issues. And if I don't try to get away from that, but if I say, oh, interesting, so let's be curious about it. Let's create an environment where we begin to explore what's actually happening. Then I see that many issues, especially when they are recurrent, because trauma is subject to the repetition compulsion. So if it's recurrent, then I know something is there that I don't see or feel or I'm not aware of, which is not 
a pathology. It's just me becoming aware of a, of some data that's missing because there are mm. some filters that I might be so used to that I, even if stuff happened when I was one, it creates filters. So I don't know that I carry that today because it became so normal. And so being curious, being humble, being willing to learn, being willing to get reflections, being willing to be part of ecosystems where we reflect each other back onto each other, being willing to look at difficulties, not as something I try not to have, but something that tries to teach me something. Mm. And like that, I begin to become curious. And I also develop in myself maybe more self-contact, a better feeling of my body. I notice more my stress levels. I notice when I get triggered. I notice when I'm emotionally numb or distant or disconnected or overreactive. And all these parts can give me some clues to where I carry those filters because I can't see them myself clearly. That's the whole nature of it. So I see the, my filters only through incongruencies, frictions, difficulties, questions that I have in my life. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Over the years, you've certainly heard me share a lot about my relationship with Kylie. If you've listened to the episodes we've done together, you've witnessed some of the most beautiful parts and certainly some of the most challenging parts. Now, although today we are a happily married couple, we have our first child, and I could say that it's the best it's ever been, the truth is that it has taken and continues to take a lot of effort and work to get where we are. I mention it often when I have psychotherapists and relationship coaches on my show, but I've had to really take a look at my own wounding and my repeated patterns to heal myself so that I could fully show up as the best version of me in this relationship. And I still have to do that to this day. And there's one thing for sure, and we all know this, relationships, not just romantic ones, they require attentiveness, they require introspection, and they require constant effort. And when both people are willing to take accountability for how they show up to the relationship and look at themselves, that's when relationships really thrive. Now, as you've heard me say before, it's not that great relationships don't have conflict. It's how they navigate conflict that's different. It's that these conflicts and challenges that they have within the relationships actually offer them an opportunity to grow and change and deepen the bond. This is where therapy can really help as a means to work through the tough moments we face in all our relationships, whether it's with our romantic partners, our friends, our family members, or our colleagues. Therapy could be what moves the needle and brings more clarity and ultimately alignment into your life to help you feel less anxious, less stressed, and more at ease. And of course, also more in choice and more in control. Now for me, therapy has helped me build a foundation to become the best version of myself so that I could show up fully to all my relationships. So if you've been thinking about trying therapy, go for it. BetterHelp is a great place to start. It's completely virtual, it's flexible, and it's easy to book a session with a therapist that fits your busy schedule. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com slash groves today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash groves. I've never heard of them referred to as incongruences. But that feels very like when you think of attunement as a word, and I think of the word alignment, like to be attuned, to be aligned, that these responses are actually informing the possibility of becoming more attuned. And yeah. as where most of us, and I'm curious of your thoughts of how this is modeled or how we learn this, but most of us will 
take the incongruence and make it about what's wrong with me that there is a problem here or yeah what do you think about that yeah i think looking how do i contribute through maybe unconscious aspects in myself to a certain situation is great once i frame it what's wrong with me usually we try to not have that part mm. so what's wrong with let's say somebody is chronically scared or afraid and i want to get rid of my fear because i think without all my fears i will be such a better person I have such a better life but how many people say oh without my liver my life would be much better and most probably not so many people yeah. in the world that will cut off their liver in order to have a better life and then we say of course thomas it's like say yeah but why of course why would i cut off not cut off my liver but cut off my fear that's funny and then i say yeah because my fears are as much part of my experience as is my liver the one is more physical the other one is more emotional and then i see wow we actually deal with the traumatized parts in ourselves in the same way as the original trauma split off the overwhelm and that's why the fears are cycling in us. So that's why I have recurrent fears when there are actually no dangerous moments. I mean, if there's a real danger, okay, then fear is a, is a natural response. But how many of us walk around with chronic fears yeah. and we don't feel safe in life and we need to do a lot to convince ourselves that it's safe. So we have a lot of compensation mechanisms on top of that. But the original fear is cycling and recurring because it has been cut off already. Mm. So many things we try to get rid of, we have gotten rid of in the past already. That's why it's doing all the symptoms that it's doing, producing. And, and once I get to say, yes, I'm, I'm actually treating those parts in the same way as I needed to split off the overwhelm, the hurt, the trauma at that time. And it's a recurrent process. And that's why depathologizing my own wounds and becoming curious is the way to reintegrate that information and grow my capacity. And that's, I think, so of course, I, I have a, a participation in unconscious dynamics, but it's not because something's wrong with me. It's because something happens on the level of my being that I'm not fully aware of. So I actually don't need to look how to get rid of this or how to frame this as my weakness or my shortcoming or my pathologies or dysfunctions, but more as my childhood intelligence, where I really tried the best in that ecosystem. And we also need to be aware as children, especially as young children, we have a very hard time to walk away. So if something is not good, it's really not good mm -hmm. because we can't change the context easily as kids. And so we needed to, to apply a lot of inner mechanisms to deal with something that wasn't really working for us in the relational space, in the family, for example. How do you see that experience of the incongruence, the filters, and the journey towards attunement? How do you see those correlated to the nervous system? 
Yeah, let's say I, I I love to bring that example because I think it it shows it beautifully. So let's say my daughter comes and says, "Daddy, Daddy, I'm scared." And then if I tell her, "Oh, don't be scared. There is no danger in the house." So what did I do? I devalued her emotion. She comes with an emotional request and I give her a rational answer. What that does is she stays more isolated with her fear and her stress and she doesn't get a chance to co-regulate this with me. Whereas when I say, when I turn to her, I feel her and I feel her fear and I say, yes, I feel you are scared. Come to me. Mm-hmm. And just this come to me is a validation of the emotion my emotional system and my nervous system connects to her nervous system. I feel her stress. I feel her fear. It becomes a mutual landscape. So fear means intimacy. Mm. Fear means, uh, like stress means co-regulation. Her system relaxes, her fear levels decrease. And then I ask her, okay, so tell me what happened. What scared you? So then I bring rational leadership into the situation or parental leadership. And then it will meet her in a very different place. She feels connected. She feels seen. She feels heard. She feels emotionally validated, co-regulated. And then we can look if there is anything really scary in the house. And most probably we'll find out there's no scary thing. So she can go back and play. But the difference is that if I, as a parent, if, I don't have enough inner availability to deal with her stress and her fear. I will try to do something to, okay, just don't, don't bother me with this basically. But I, I'm not saying that, but I, that's what I do. Versus mm-hmm. if we can receive our children, but also in leadership positions, often people feel stressed. They're afraid. They, I don't know. They made mistakes or they, so if we keep it at the distance because it overwhelms us. So we often stay isolated and alone. And of course, the stronger is the separation in family systems, kids stay alone. So the nervous system is charged with emotions, with stress, and often isolated because the relational network that needed to co-regulate that wasn't available. And then if, you know, children got hospitalized or children felt violence in the family, then this gets just amplified by a lot. And and so the nervous system needs another nervous system in order to co-regulate. So when we are grown-ups, we can feel like when we, when we become more open and aware in, in a relational setting, we see that when somebody speaks about an emotion that comes up. So somebody says, I'm scared, scared to lose my job. And then when I feel the person, I feel in the moment, the person, the person was very open and engaged. In the moment they talk about their fear, we can feel they retract their relational awareness into themselves. So fear Mm. happens in an isolated space. So that fear is maybe four years old, but it it wasn't co-regulated or it was uh, hurt. So the fear doesn't relate to the environment anymore. It's an isolated Mm. emotion. So that's why in our work, we very much look at that fear can be a fear of a 
six-month-old child that became chronic anxiety in somebody's life. It can be a 12-year-old fear of somebody that got bullied at school. It, it can be many different aspects of fear that are not all, all of them is, is not the same and it needs a different treatment and a different attunement of the therapist coach in order to create that co-regulative experience that can help us to exhale that emotion and really mm. integrate that emotion. Otherwise, it stays kind of stored in the nervous system. So many of those filters, and since our nervous system is very complex, there might be many layers of the experiences that couldn't integrate themselves in a relational experience and got stuck inside. And when we do that work, we feel every time we integrate a trauma layer, we feel there's a movement into exhalation. And then there is a movement into more expression and participation. And, and I think people who experience it feel, oh, my body becomes more open. My emotional system becomes more resonant. My stress levels are more balanced and regulated and so on. So many positive developments in our life. Is there a delineation between the perception of the level of trauma? Because I think a lot of people think like, oh, I don't have the right to that experience because my childhood wasn't that hard or whatever it is. But is there like, do you see there being a delineation or is trauma trauma kind of full stop? No, I think there is a delineation, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a right mm -hmm. to have that. So there, of course, there's maybe some people call this the small T trauma and then yeah. the big T trauma. Of course, a soldier in a, in a war situation that experienced a lot of violence and so might carry another trauma than somebody or somebody having experienced an alcoholic father. There was a lot of violence, has beaten a lot of often. And, and another person that has a different childhood, of course, there is a difference. And in the, in the, power and residue of the trauma that's active in the person's life. But some sometimes we think, or some people, I think, still think that trauma is mainly those very extreme situations. Yeah. And then they disregard in themselves that actually they carry partial trauma symptoms. They might not be as explicit and as strongly PTSD or complex PTSD, but they they live in us and we also need to take in account and i see this also very often that the intergenerational trauma transmission that my trauma symptoms might not even make sense really given my biography but i feel that i have those symptoms in my life mm -hmm. and then people start doubting themselves comparing themselves or saying okay let's just notice that this is there and let's work on that and I'll give it a space and we will find out where it really comes from. But since you suffer some degree, we need to give that attention. And there are this, uh, like uh, Isabel Manzui, uh, an epigenetic scientist, a professor at the Zurich University, shows in her mice experiment that traumatized mice transmit the trauma symptoms through epigenetic changes in sperm cells for five or six generations. And besides the first mouse, all the others didn't experience attachment trauma, mm -hmm. but they have the same symptoms. And wow. so 
So I think that we open up a bit the lens and say, we have been born into a context that carries trauma already. That is my lineage, my ancestral lineage. And it's also the collective, my the society that I was born into. There is systemic trauma already. And so I think the more we become more sensitive to the different grades or shades of trauma, I think we can we can ground ourselves that and I can work on this. I that's my experience and I begin to trust more that my experience is valid, even if it's not as strong as other people experience it. All right. Now you probably heard me talk about my favorite meditation and breathwork app, which is Open. I know the founder and he's an incredible guy and I love the feel of the app and all the different options of what you can do in terms of meditations, breathwork. And so I'm excited to share with you how I've been using it this year to stay on top of my breathwork and meditation practices. I love doing a meditation or breathwork practice either in the morning or when I sit down for work for the day because it does help me ensure that I'm fully present. Now, I also do it in response to a high stress circumstance or I need some space to take some deeper breaths, to do something to get me out of maybe like an anxious feeling that I might have when I have more things to do or more stress during the day. That really allows me to get that angst out, that tightness that I can sometimes get just holding so many balls in the air. And I see that result in my HRV, which I track. So because of breath work or a meditation, I do feel lighter. I feel more energetic. I feel like I have less anxiety and stress throughout the day or at the end of the day. Now I'm working on my somatic awareness deeply. I'm always doing that. And I love choosing different practices daily to add some flexibility to it and also have different feelings that come up for me and where I might be holding stress and tension in different parts of my body, which I tend to find stress I get in my upper back and sometimes in my jaw. And the best part of all of this is it takes less than 10 minutes a day. And I'm knocking out a practice with my miracle morning list. And if you haven't already, check out that episode I did with Hal Elrod called Wake Up to Your Best Life to hear more about this life-changing routine you can implement in your mornings. So on top of that, Open is currently offering a special heart and heartbreak series. So that's pretty in alignment, hey? Especially for those of you who are having all the feels right now to help you navigate love, loss, and all matters of the heart. So whether you're looking for healing, more energy, nervous system regulation, managing anxiety and stress, or winding down at the end of the day, Open has a ton of awesome practices you could choose from. If you want to get in on my daily routine, you can get 30 days free of Open by visiting withopen.com slash create the love. Again, you get 30 days free. Just visit withopen.com open.com slash create the love. It sounds to me like the solution to healing it is communities required, like the ability to bring forth these things that have never been attended to and allow them to be attended. How does one even seek out that kind of community or find because like so much of it exists in our family or we're still in the origin place or connected to people where they're still rewounding because we seem to seek out the rewounding unconsciously too. That's right. That's a very beautiful point. I think we just want to underline that, of course, it's, I, I, I tell a short story, but that, that illuminates exactly what you said just now. Once I, because we work also on these bigger trauma fields, I said in a big event with hundreds hundreds of people I said okay let's 
let's do a process where we everybody that lived in the former west of Germany goes to that side, and everybody who lived in the former west of Europe sits behind it. And we did the same for the former east. Wow. And after synchronizing these two big fields, hundreds of people on each side, we said, okay, so I asked some of my team members to put bricks in the middle. It was unbelievable. After putting three bricks in the middle, we could feel like a wow. wave of emotions on both sides, like it, like people start crying and there was a really like a wave of emotions in the room. So we, we looked at that and we let that ground itself. And then we gave a microphone to both sides. And so people can share voices. And the first person on the side of the former East said, and I know it sounds crazy, but in the moment you put the first brick there, I felt such a relief. Mm. And I thought, wow, what a sentence. Like, I thought, that's exactly the imprint of a certain condition that we grow up in is, is staying imprinted in our nervous system. And when we feel a situation that fits to it, we actually recognize that as a familiar situation, even if that situation was painful. And I, mm -hmm. I just want to share this because what you just said is very important. It looks like we are always choosing freely because that's what we get taught by hyper-individualized society that is all your freedom. But when we look a bit closer, it's not as free our choices as it looks like at first. And secondly, the other side is also true, as you said, if we know that healing ecosystems are an amazing boost to our own growth, and not just trying to do it with self-help books, but really engaging in a communal or in an ecosystem of growth and healing, that um, that can help us to restore some of this old familiarities and really learn in the relational exposure that sometimes it's it's very pleasant and sometimes it also comes with friction, but that actually helps us to open those old uh, imprints and, and learn something new so that we can stop repeating the old choices and really make new choices. So, and I, and I, deeply believe that we are moving into an age of collective healing, that collective mm -hmm. healing fields can, combined with one-on-one -on -one work, are, I think, an amazing boost to how we heal, how we develop, and how we grow as human beings. Yeah, that's interesting. I agree with you. I do think that we are moving to collective healing, and it seems as though that is itself bringing up a lot of these incongruences, you know, that, that they're being brought forward because maybe we are at, well, I suppose the, the answer is we must be at the place where our consciousness or the collective experience can hold these things as it maybe for one of the first times in recent human history, at least that there's an ability to co-regulate as we hold a lot of stuff. Like, I guess my question is, why does there also seem to be so much resistance, like almost more polarity 
in maybe in the face of that yeah because i think there are two things i think the in social media we see a combination of a very disembodied relating that trauma anyway creates disembodiment like a lack of sensitivity in certain parts of our bodies because we needed to shut down those so we feel less connected to our physical bodies and through our bodies uh, to physical relationships and of course if i'm grounded and open and related then it doesn't matter i can feel you through the screen same as if you were sitting in the same room with me i think if we trained it and if you are grounded then it doesn't matter but if we are already a bit disembodied and then the the digital dimension and often on social media we don't even see or feel the people that we are communicating with that's why there is often this vomiting of information that is so okay. that we would not say to the person if the person was in the same room with us and and that already creates a big thing that uh, i think that in itself is is something and then there the collective or at least what i've learned about systemic trauma is that one collective trauma symptom is feeling separate separation creates othering othering mm -hmm. creates strong polarization and fragmentation in the society so when we look at what happened through covid there was a stressor and the collective system and then the fragmentations that were anyway there just became super highlighted mm -hmm. and when you look at and the other point is that my body is has an kind of an, an intranet like a like an internet as a communication network like a wi-fi system but where there is trauma in my body that data flow even in my own self doesn't work well so when i am exposed through an ever-increasing speed of data, even as we speak, the speed of data grows. So mm -hmm. we are so exposed to trauma content all the time. Look at now what's happening mm -hmm. in the news. Like there's so much that being able to ground that experience and really feel what certain things mean that we are reading, mm. that often doesn't happen. No. So we are informed intellectually, but our emotional, physical system and our nervous systems are so overloaded that we're often numb when we read the news. We don't, or we get emotionally so triggered that we can't feel the situation, but just our trigger and our, our very strong reaction to what we yeah. read. But that's not anymore connected. And people say, yeah, but I feel a lot. Yeah, but, but you don't feel what happens in that place or for the people you feel your own trigger often and of course some people that are more centered and more connected and grounded they can also be empathic and feel the real pain that is happening in different places around the world at the moment but i think what often happens is that it touches the trauma we carry that gets reactivated and the faster is the speed of data the less we can ground the information we read and then many things stay up there and are being vomited onto social media platforms and that's often very toxic not helpful at all and it just produces more polarization people in their silos mm -hmm. and i think that that is a very strong collective trauma symptom that we see i think fake news is another one that the data that is not embodied can be everything 
because right. it's not specific. It, real. it can it can't be felt because once you feel it, you feel something is off here. This doesn't doesn't match. Something doesn't connect. Even if I don't know what exactly, but I feel hmm, that's strange. But otherwise, everything can be shared because it's disconnected data. And so there are many symptoms right now that we see, I think, that um, show us the level of disembodiment in billions of people. And as I said, that's not a good or a bad thing, but it creates a lot of symptoms. I believe including climate change, the way we consume, the way we use resources. So disembodiment has a lot of follow-up effects in our world and needs to be taken seriously. That's interesting that the correlation, because if you think about the intranet, the nervous systems that are all interacting, <laughs> maybe not so well, and then you also have the nervous system of the planet that is also in trauma, because, you know, we, as we are more disembodied, become more extractive, we become more um, addicted to things. Mm -hmm. And it's like the news cycle feeds the disembodiment, feeds the, you know, it, and it, at some point we have to pattern interrupt and decide that attunement is the intention mm -hmm. rather than this disembodiment. Because what do we get in interpersonal relationships when we're not attuned, right? We get toxic dynamics. We get that the resistance to attunement, which is really fascinating to think like that imprint of childhood, let's say, as you, you gave a number of great examples, but let's say a father who was an alcoholic who was abusive, it's like, oh man, if I am attuned, I open to potential abuse. So instead, I'll just close off and put it mm -hmm. through the filters. Mm -hmm. um, but then I feel like I'm not opening up to life and to love and to exhaling. And I think we need to get you to get on the internet and do a super broadcast and have everyone go on different sides of the room and put, you know, name the thing, a brick, a needle, a, a clothing, whatever it represents, these ideas that we have about who we are that allow us to be othered. What do you think about, is that ultimately at the basis of it is that we are creating a separate self and that self is so like in order to protect is not allowing that openness. Absolutely. Exactly. The way you said it, I would, I would uh, totally underline what you just said and that we see because the conscious use of social media is that I, when I write you a message, I feel you. When I write you an email, I feel you. When mm -hmm. I, I send a text on any kind of social media out, I feel the person that I talk to and I feel how that person talks to me. Because once right. we reground the internet, so we begin to ground the internet again through our embodiment and that creates sanity. Because when the experience is just arbitrary and not connected anymore to any specificity, it doesn't say anything anymore. It's not specific. So that's why in the mystical traditions no, we say there's universal, there's a universal truth, but it's very specific in our experience. And if that gets lost, then we can say anything, but it doesn't have any yeah. meaning anymore because it's not connected to anything. And then it sounds like a disconnected philosophy. And that's, we don't need this. This is just trash because on, only when it's connected to ourselves, then the universal information makes sense through a specific address. 
And that makes sense when I talk to you. I'm not talking to everybody in the world. No, I'm talking to you and we create a relationship here or I'm talking to a group, but then I have a relationship to that group, not to everybody. Of course, the group is part of everybody and still it has a specific information. And I think if that gets lost, and, and I think a lot what we see on, on social media is losing touch with the specificity. Otherwise, we wouldn't say certain things. We wouldn't write certain, certain things. Right. We also would do different journalism. We wouldn't post certain things and we wouldn't look at certain things because it's crossing boundaries. Some of the information that's being uploaded on the internet is not for us to see. It's enough to know that it's happening. We don't need to see the people suffering here. That is, that is too much. Mo most of the people get just more polarized when that happens. Right. And it doesn't add to information. So mm. I'm becoming informed. That's why we are also looking also in our collective trauma summit and in other activities, we're looking what is actually trauma informed journalism. Like instead of <laughs> instead of cre creating creating more kind of extreme news feeds in order to get clicks, what is a, a regulated version of being part and and also reporting about many things that are very difficult in our world, but when they are trauma informed, they will come out in a different way. They will be able to be absorbed in a different way, and they create more connection connectivity, attunement, real information. And so the social body gets, again, informed on a deeper level. And that, I think, creates more care, that creates more participation, that creates more agency to make a change versus all that spinning, I call this spinning information, that cannot ground itself anymore. That's why it doesn't have any impact, but it creates yeah. a lot of othering. So, yeah. yeah. Do you think it's our responsibility then if our intention is attunement that it becomes our responsibility to say no to the chaotic, the the extremes of news? Yes, I, I think, I, I actually think I, in our work, we want to, we are going towards a an understanding, especially once we understand collective trauma, we see that sensation, Certain sensational news feeds, I believe, are detrimental to public health. They actually decrease public health like and, and don't don't support public health. Yes, we can throw anything out in, into the open, but it also has an effect. And I think the more we can, and that's where science in the current language of our world is really helpful that when we can see that this kind of news and news feeds and social media posts are detrimental to public health, then we will also find maybe a different way of regulation, setting boundaries, not participating in certain things, which doesn't mean that I don't want to be informed what's happening in the world, because I think it's important to be informed because whether or not I'm reading news, I'm living anyway into in the ecosystem that has all that information inside. It's not because I don't read news, I don't know anything. No, the, what you said before, I have an individual nervous system that picks up stuff. 
I have an ancestral nervous system, I believe. My nervous system, like everybody's nervous system, is not just a personal property. It's, it has much more information. And there's a collective nervous system, I believe, as part of what we can sense and feel and feel connected to in our social skills that anyway picks up a lot of this stuff, consciously or unconsciously. And so being informed is important, but the way we are being informed needs to be regulated because we never lived in such a time like now with mm -hmm. all these technological facilities. We need to find a regulation in it. And it's not just let it loose. Let it loose, I think, is, is irresponsible. Like as a parent, to let it loose all the time is, is not healthy. And also in society, we need to regulate certain parts that are connected to very young parts that use technology. And I think there needs to be some kind of regulation or that everybody who feels mature enough that we refrain of doing something and supporting other things so that it becomes a more regulated environment. I think there is a strong responsibility also connected to that. Yeah, I think if we want to create a world that has the opportunity to be in dialogue, that attunement to be with one another, to be informed by each other, I mean, the responsibility of the individual who's seeking to create that and participate in that is to do this deeper work, is to to get into a state of regulation and heal our trauma. I'm curious for, because I'm sure all the people listening to this are those people, how do we better do that? Like, what is the journey to becoming that maybe fulcrum or reference point for other people? Mm. Yeah, I, I love to speak about the beauty of maturation. So what does it mean every time I meet unintegrated parts in myself that, that through inner work can be led into more integration? my perspective grows. So if there are younger parts in myself that are more reactive, that are more in cyclic patterns stuck, if I integrate those, I grow and become more mature. What does it mean to become more mature? It means I become more resilient. I have a deeper grounding and base, and I become more able to host contradictions mm. and disagreements and conflicts in myself. Even if that means that contradiction or also conflicting information that I might have with other people, I don't need to disconnect from the other person because of that. Why? Because I'm willing to feel the discomfort of the tension. If the tension can be hosted in a mature nervous system, it doesn't lead to othering. It means that we don't agree on something, but in the conflict, we can stay connected. That's an amazing capability that maturity gives us. Also, that we are willing to feel all the beautiful parts of our emotional experience, but also to feel the painful parts. And we are living in a world where the end time story, we need to question if there is such an end time story that we're all heading to, I don't know, to paradise, or that we are heading to a much higher presence and maturity in a world that has a lot of pain and creates a lot of pain as we are speaking here, but that our relationship to that world is changing. 
becomes mm. more generous, more open, more hosting, more inclusive of the tensions that we feel. And I think those are all functions uh, that many people experience when they, they feel their own inner growth, that we also can be more grounded in the world that is here and we don't need to create like a fantasy version of the world, but we we actually bring more love into this world. And I think that's how our world is changing, not by trying to get out of it, but by really getting into it in a titrated and skillful way. And then from inside, we can change this world into a more fair, more equal, uh, non-racist, non-anti-Semitic, non-whatever, climate-destroying way of living um, because we are more interconnected from inside to the process that we are part of and we're not anymore separate from. And, and maybe the last thing to that is also that on the way there, I think we really need to challenge the myth of the hyper individual self, that individuation is not hyper individualized, which means an individual plus separate. Mm -hmm. And that's why when we see an individual, we also see the ecosystem. And what I mean mm -hmm. by that, many people say, I'm part of an ecosystem. And I would say, hmm, are you really part of an ecosystem or are you the ecosystem? And the example is, mm -hmm. for example, when you go through the forest, where is nature? Some people might say, oh, nature is around me. And I would say, yeah, but where are you? Because my body is also nature. It's not that nature is just this. This is also nature. So what's the, am I also the ecosystem or am I just part of the ecosystem? And I think that sounds like a small thing, but I think it expresses something fundamental that often we feel a bit separate within mm -hmm. the experience that we are in. And that separation, when we become more aware of it, can actually open up into a much deeper interconnectedness. That's why I call the book also the interdependence of the individual and the ecosystem is actually the healing power. And yeah, so I think these are all aspects of our growth. Yeah, I think so much of that individual individualization or hyper independence you know you think of a lot of the messaging about relationships is never need anybody don't depend on people they'll let you down etc and the other side of that though is that often part of trying to get someone to comply in a family or a community uh, or in a, a country is the weaponization of belonging and using shame. So you have this collective wound and then you have the solution to the collectivism wound is hyper-individualization. And what I hear you're inviting us to is actually like moving in, being a trusted space for yourself to then create trusted spaces with others and then create a trusting uh, open world that can hold, you know, because both of those wounds are, are legitimate sources of why we cut ourselves off. But of course the solution <laughs> you know, the, the pain of being separate and lonely is so significant for people. And mm. the percentage of people who don't even have someone to call 
if they need someone is, is a sign that individualization or hyper individuation is not productive. And it's certainly not good on our health, is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you said it that, that, um, of course, as kids first, we are dependent. Mm -hmm. And I think to, to notice the, the time and to kind of acknowledge the time that, yes, at times we were dependent and we might be dependent again. When people need help, when people need care, when we are in very vulnerable life situations. So like to see what's my relationship to that state of my life. And then we individuate more and more and we become more autonomous. But when the autonomy becomes isolation or becomes mm -hmm. like a kind of a wall, then I become lonely because I don't feel the context anymore. That's why we say there is yeah, dependence, yeah. there is there's independence, but the next higher synthesis is interdependence, which means I am autonomous when I need to. I can let go into being held by somebody because I feel safe enough to be there. So I don't need to pull the car or the wagon all the time, the chariot all the time by myself. But I, I am regulated in whatever life needs. And I feel the interdependence because just as we are going through this conversation, we both are interdependent with all the plants and trees that produce the oxygen that we could have or can have this conversation. So we are anyway, the myth of being a separate particle is not true because mm -hmm. we're all interdependent in this world and we all affect each other. And so I think it doesn't mean that I need to give up on my autonomy, but it also means that I can be vulnerable and open if I need something and really address that, and I'm resting in the bigger perspective that hosts both of, both of them. That is not an either or, but it's actually a bigger integrated space. And I think that's what maturity is about. Because some people define their strength, but what they're actually saying, this is my resistance. This mm. is my isolation. It feels like strength. But it's not strength, it's kind of like a bit stuck in the teenage years. So it's me and I'm getting everything done, but that's not maturity. Maturity is if that matures into interdependence. Mm -hmm. And I think I once in the show that Bruce Springsteen gave on Broadway, I think Bruce said something very lovely. He said, and I thank you to his audience for providing me with purpose. Mm. Because who is Bruce Springsteen without anybody listening to his music? Right. So even our purpose is not my purpose. It's my purpose in relationship to the world. Because that's where I express my gifts. That's where you express your gifts and you touch many people and I touch many people. Like it, And people do whatever they do within that context. So the purpose is not just... Like me, it's a me and a we. And and so I think that sentence that he said, I thought, wow, that's a beautiful way to say, yes, of course, there's a gift and there's a great musical genius. And that is inter that's only so great because of everybody who resonates with Bruce Springsteen's music. 
and they belong together. They're not separate. Right. That's right. They require each other. Yeah. 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 And when you talked about like being in nature and being nature, or even that we always exist in a context, that there's an exhale to that. And I'm sure for some people, there's a bit of a constriction to that, that resistance to interdependence, that resistance to being informed. You talked earlier a bit about ancestral healing and, and ancestral wounds that we can be sort of confused by those because they don't make sense to our own biography. I know in the book, you do share a practice for ancestral healing. Can you speak more just to the importance of that and, and maybe what that could look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as I said before, I believe we still look at our nervous system too much from the perspective of an individual. So it's just a personal nervous system. I believe our nervous systems are way more complex. And I think we will find out through neuroscience more and more about that complexity that actually the individual ancestral and collective experience is encoded in our nervous system, which means that our ancestors are not just the people we remember as maybe our parents or grandparents that passed away already that or their or our great grandparents what we know about them through genealogy but that when we tune in with our bodies and we set the intention we can begin to feel into the relationships to those ancestors we can feel their lives more we can feel into where there are constrictions in the family systems, where there was trauma, unresolved trauma, where actually we find out, and I saw this often also when we did the collective trauma work in Germany, the, the difficulty to relate to ancestors when they were SS officers, when they mm -hmm. were convinced Nazis. Like, how do we re relate to... Yeah. Our ancestors, when they had a very different value system and they made very different choices that we would make, when we actually feel ashamed or guilty or like there are many, there's a lot of complexity connected to our ancestors. And this might be different, like in other cultures with different transgressions. And so, or there is trauma of being hurt by some, by somebody that, for example, my grandparents, they all went through the Second World War. So the trauma of the war was in them. So in my work, I had to do a lot of work on the ancestral dimension of trauma that came from my ancestors because that's what they went through. And, and, but what that does is when, when it's not just an intellectual idea, but when we begin to really feel and see, wow, a lot of information is actually stored in our nervous systems. And that it's not only information, it's channels of data that open up when we do the ancestral healing work. And we also do it in communities where we can be with each other when we do that. Then I have seen many people that feel, wow, with the ancestral work, I touch topics and issues in my life that I couldn't touch through the individual childhood work. Mm -hmm. And so there is a, a, a need for the individual attachment work, but there is a bigger context that also needs to be addressed that that individual work cannot address because it is not the right tool for them. And, and I think when we don't see it as either or, but when we see it as a continuation, then some of the top, some of the suffering in our life really comes 
from that layer of our being. And when we open it up, we become also more perceptive to other people's ancestors. And then ancestors is not just an idea, it actually becomes mm -hmm. a felt experience, an intimacy. And I have seen many, many beautiful healing processes. Like once I had a one-on-one -on -one session with somebody and we did some of the ancestral work. And then she, the next morning she wrote to me and she said, listen, it's unbelievable, but that that part of my family was 30 years and strange. We had no contact to that part of the family. And that night, that person wrote her an email just after doing that process. And I have experienced yeah, right. this more often. Uh, it's same wild. Thing. That's amazing. Which means Isn't that amazing? People, yeah, it's amazing. And so many family systems actually can begin to heal when those stagnations are being consciously addressed step by step, and it creates new movements and reorganizes the system. That's so beautiful. My gosh, it's amazing when you think of that uh, collective intelligence and how it moves and how the work we do really does have this giant ripple effect. And, and the, the, the trick of the ego is it's only me. And if I do this, eh, it's just going to be me, but it's no, it transcends every relationship. And you see that if one person changes how they communicate, all relationships have to start to be in the same wave of communication. They have to be willing to engage in that attunement. Um, you talk also about spiritually healing. So can you speak to the importance of that and what that might look like? When we talk about the spiritual dimension, we actually begin to open ourselves up that my individual life is not just the only context I'm part of, my ancestral life is is part when we talk about that the collective aspect is part but also the the spiritual dimension holds a few very important aspects first of all that i can transcend part of my current identification with this self and and begin to open up into a bigger context that i'm part of and that's not only my ancestors which is for many people also already partly a spiritual process but it's it's a bigger dimension of inspiration, of higher consciousness, of many, many insights about life, of participating, that I begin to feel, wow, my life is actually embedded in a much bigger story than me personally as Thomas. And mm -hmm. that there is a river in my life. And often when our attachment wounds are, are very strong, then we feel, wow, we need to chronically control life and make everything happen versus yes there's the part i'm in a river and i have to swim but the water of the river is moving by itself so it's not mm. everything is dependent just on me there's a whole composition that i'm part of and i open up to that composition which begins to open up to synchronicities to a deeper flow experience that uh, it's less exhausting it's I do my part, but things are also coming towards me along my way and they're supportive and they open up and create new insights. There's a constant learning process and there is an emergence, which means a constant update. And I'm sure you feel that too, that in our work, every time we have a new idea, a creative impulse, a new insight, we are updating what we are doing yeah. is not it's not the same like 10 years ago there's an update built in to life and that update oh, also comes 
from our higher consciousness. And so I believe for some people, the healing process becomes a very personal effort. And so then it's me and me trying to heal myself, which on the one hand, my self-motivation is, of course, very important, but it doesn't mean that there is not another dimension that is described in various traditions as grace, as blessing, that there are certain things that can come to us and that can support us in the healing process. And opening up to that dimension is not just magical thinking, but is me becoming part of the update of life and and uh, that inspiration and innovation can become a capacity, not just a coincidence. Mm. And I can be more aligned, more in resonance with my path. I feel more centered in my path, which doesn't mean centered means stuck. Centered means moving. Mm-hmm. And so I'm moving more in the flow of my life and then I'm also more open and generous. And the more generous I become, I create very positive cycles. And then I feel more gratitude and more generosity and more openness. And like this, I begin to grow basically in my life faster and faster because there's more movement happening through me. And it's not everything is my ownership because holding on to what I do. That's why in the Tao Te Ching, there, for example, a, a wisdom book that I very much respect, there's a lot of, and it says, and when the master does her work, when it's done, she lets it go. Mm. It's beautiful. For many people, when we do our work, it's like, I did it, and I want all cameras to see that I did it. But then, yeah. Let it go, and be present for the next moment. And I think there's a beauty to that movement, to that river. That can be deeply healing, and we can use that as... Because I think that's where the self-healing mechanism of life is being activated. Obviously, if we want to move towards that journey of attunement, the getting your book is a great decision. And I know you have the practices about ancestral healing and many other uh, practices in there. I'm curious, what are some tools that people could use today to help them heal and become more attuned. Yeah, one is uh, like um, connecting deeper to our body, developing a deeper body awareness because our body is an amazing biocomputer and often we didn't read the manual really of what all, all <laughs> the biocomputer can do. It's like you buy a new car, but you you know only five functions and the rest you never read about. And the car is hyper-intelligent. And so our biocomputer is super intelligent, but we often don't know and we don't activate all the functions. So having a deeper interior awareness, being feeling more into the coherence or incoherence of my physical, emotional, mental expression, noticing my relational fluctuations. I feel you and I feel how you feel me is an amazing practice to, to practice that all day long, as long as in, in our offices, with our families, with friends, uh, in the supermarket, I feel you feeling me just as a practice and see what that changes. Because as you said, beautiful, if you change something in the way we relate, we affect so many people that we are related to and that we are relating to every day. And so it becomes an ecosystemic change. And then maybe having some space for contemplation, 
just even if it's 10 minutes a day, every day that I sit and make space and listen, space leads to reflection, reflection leads to digestion. I digest my experience. I integrate my experience as learning and, um, and also practicing attunement to the collective dimension, looking where do I feel very distant in society? Where do I feel very close? Being willing to explore both, exposing myself to people that really speak in a similar language than I do, and exposing my people to contradict my perspective. I think that's mm -hmm. a very important learning step, that I don't just go into my social media bubble, but I'm, I'm beginning relationships with also contradicting voices so for me to learn what that means for me really so there are many more but i think really being open to expand my experience in life and then i often say because if if i stay only where it's comfortable i can only walk down the right side of the street but i will never cross to the left side of the street even if the shop is there that i really want because I will not go there. And if I, if I open my life and I am, I'm willing to wrestle with contradictions, with disagreements, or the, with, with things that challenge me, then I open my, uh, my spectrum and I become more and more free in, in this world to move with life. So there's much more to say, but I think these are a few inspirations. Beautiful. Thomas, this has been, I could talk to you all day about humanity and consciousness. This has been such a pleasure. And mm. for the people listening, where can they, I know you have a number of other opportunities for people. You have the book and, and other things. So where can they find out more and, and what do you have upcoming? Mm -hmm. Yeah, first of all, I want to tell you also that I enjoy the conversation a lot. And, and the way you hold the space and you ask the questions is very generative so it creates more it creates a very generous space so thank you for that it's beautiful yeah yeah i think my website thomashubel.com and hubel is h-u-e-b-l.com thomas h-u-e-b-l.com maybe our collective trauma summit collective trauma summit.com it's a great resource we do it five years now and we reached many many people great speakers and and our ngo where we do collective trauma work pocketproject.org are some of the websites where we can you can everybody can find out more about our work perfect we'll make sure we put them in the show notes thanks again thomas i appreciate you thank you mm -hmm.